Welcome to the Chameleon's Podcast. Apocalyptic tales have long been envisioned in literature and films as a scary and unwanted scenario in the far future. Today, we see an increasing tendency of such portrayals in both the popular and scientific media. We are all starting to realize that the technological era that we are currently finding ourselves in will make us replaceable in many areas unthinkable just a decade ago. There is thus a need to reconsider how to meet the demand for sustainable and meaningful lives for the masses. I strongly believe in considering alternative ways of how the world could be, but I'm often more hesitant to embrace ideas of how the world should be. The world is so complex, diverse, constantly changing and challenging to predict that I can't find myself believing in permanent solutions. This is why I genuinely admire efforts to think beyond grand utopian ideas and people who dare to imagine realistic societal models that are still flexible and open to change and scientific progress. Jonathan Kolber is an entrepreneur and technology enthusiast who has worked in several startups and is a successful tech investor. He was the last seed investor in Cambridge Quantum Computing, which later merged with Honeywell's quantum unit to become Quantinium, today a world leader in quantum computing. He's also a seed investor in Xeno Biosciences. He has also written a book proposing an alternative system level solution to our future challenges, which he calls a celebration society. In this conversation, we discuss the depth of the challenges facing us and the solution he proposes to solve these. Jonathan and I had a back and forth conversation this summer in which I sent him my questions and he recorded his replies and sent this back to me. This allowed us to record the interview in several parts where we could reflect in depth on the different topics regarding his work and his book, A Celebration Society in particular. I've asked Jonathan to define some of the technical terms he uses so no one gets lost in his explanations. I feel humble, grateful, and fortunate that Jonathan was willing to share his ideas with me. And I strongly recommend reading his book to learn more about his forceful vision. This became a very special interview and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Before we start, just a quick mention of a new sponsor. Nomono is a Norwegian company dedicated to improving and simplifying podcasting. Their portable sound capsule is easy and intuitive to use. You simply put on their Wi-Fi connected multi-track recorder, use the four high-quality wireless mics to record, and it gets automatically uploaded to your very own Nomono Cloud, where the AI-powered audio enhancement provides exceptional audio quality. I used the Nomono portable podcasting kit to record myself in this episode, and I will continue to use it in future interviews, because I can't see how I would be able to continue podcasting without it. Check out their website on nomono.co. I highly recommend it. This is the Chameleons Podcast, and I'm your host, Imak Samrana. And now, this is the interview with Jonathan Kolber. 
First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Could we start with something personal? Who are you, Jonathan? I started on this journey about half a century ago. I had a sickly childhood, often plagued by severe asthma. In fact, several times it almost killed me. I was lonely and depressed much of the time. I wanted to know what the point of my struggle was. Then I had a vivid dream. It had many details. And in the dream, I was introduced to a society whose purpose was to protect and uplift life on Earth. I was inspired. And in the dream, I asked the leader of the society if I could join them. He smiled at me indulgently, as mature people will smile at overly enthusiastic children, and told me I wasn't ready. But then he said that someday I would be, and that I would know them by their name, which was a code. Then he told me the code. I tried to figure it out and couldn't, and then forgot about the whole thing. Five years later, I read the results of a national dream contest in which the second place winner was exactly the same dream as mine, detail for detail, same order, except the code was slightly different. You know that saying, the hair stood up on the back of your neck? I knew it then. I decided that this would guide my life somehow, some way. In the decades that followed, there were many adventures, mistakes, and lessons, thanks in large part to the book, The High Frontier, by the physicist, Dr. Gerardo Neal. Were you always interested in nature and science? I came to appreciate that a society based on systems of sustainable technological abundance was both possible and vital. Sustainable technological abundance was the key to protecting and uplifting life on Earth. I worked as a technical writer for a number of years, and then I got an MBA in finance. Eventually, this led to my writing from 2004 to 2008, an investment advisory about bleeding-edge technology companies. I saw that while each was doing something potentially wonderful for the world, together, along with many others like them, they were taking us in the direction of a future with far fewer jobs. This increasingly concerned me. Others, such as Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, also saw the potential for accelerating technology to produce abundance. But few, if any, foresaw a drastic reduction in jobs, as I did then and still do today, and the crisis that would cause. I think this is one of the great challenges of our time, frankly. In addition to incomes, most of us get our sense of meaning from our work. If people can no longer get meaning from work, how will they get it? I left that position and then deeply researched the roots of economics for several years, which resulted in my book, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, a 21st century translation and commentary. All of that together gave me the background to write a celebration society. As a small child, I took a passionate interest in dinosaurs. I imagined a whole society of dinosaurs. <laughs> it was my first experience with societal design, literally at the level of wooden blocks. Later, I developed a keen interest in the scientific method as the only way to produce knowledge that can both be demonstrated and then repeated. I also practiced meditation for years and came to experience what I like to call revealed knowledge or the other kind of knowledge. I was also interested in chess and became Iowa collegiate champion. I read 
a lot as a child and still do read a lot, especially science fiction, with an emphasis on what's called the hard kind that's actually plausible. This continues to inspire my thinking about the future. I also greatly enjoy being in nature, especially hikes and places of beauty. My wife and I actually plan in future to enjoy a world tour of waterfalls. From an ACS perspective, what's our abbreviation for a Celebration Society ACS, nature is vital for its ecosystems in which we humans are part, as well as the major contributions it has to offer us. For example, it's been estimated that 25% of our prescription medicines were derived from Amazon jungle plants. How many are being lost to deforestation and climate change that we'll never even know about? Within a celebration society, we envision a surrounding forest or woods as both a natural ecosystem and separation from other human habitations. This will be populated with ecologically appropriate wild animals. However, in addition to this, we also envision that same wilderness flowing through the city-state from one side to the other in a corridor that's been carefully segregated from human habitats. Eventually, multiple societies located nearby each other may establish much larger such corridors, connecting one to another and supporting wilderness migration. Our basic watchword is that nature is beautiful, but harsh. Where it interacts with people, it must be wisely managed. We humans need to respect it, recognize the limits of our own knowledge, and manage the interactions of nature and ourselves to protect both. Okay, let's get into your book. When I started reading it, I was so astonished by the merging of what I recognize from science fiction, this all-encompassing system narrative, with a very reality and scientifically rooted approach. I'd like to start with the purpose of the book and how it came about. The book exists to serve several purposes. First and foremost, it was written as my answer to a wicked problem. I have expressed this problem as accelerating automation threatens to displace multitudes of workers. Others have proposed retraining displaced workers or a vast new wave of entrepreneurship as their solutions. And that's even assuming they believe that there will not be enough good new jobs for the displaced workers, as many still do. Many believe that, including leading policymakers and economists, because after all, it's always been true of the previous waves of automation. However, as investment professionals love to tell us, past results cannot guarantee future performance. I believe that I have provided a dispositive argument and analysis in the book as to why this time really will be different. Second, and much less urgently, I see the book as offering a scaffolding, not a blueprint, and certainly not the only possible scaffolding, but a viable one for building a world of sustainable abundance in stages to replace our current scarcity-driven one. So I was wondering, what led you into the insight that automation was accelerating and that this would lead to massive job displacement and loss? I guess I'm wondering, why is this time different? As I profiled dozens of innovative technology companies for the investment letter, I became convinced that advancing automation would take us toward a largely jobless future. And I was amazed that others didn't see it this way. I do want to credit Ray Kurzweil's work on the exponential nature of technological progress, which he discovered and for which I believe he deserves a Nobel Prize. It was a vital contribution to my own understanding. 
And it ties crucially into the fact that unlike previous waves of automation, this time the machines are ever more intelligent and now they can even learn the same way as we people do by observing, trial, error, and correction. It's crucial to understand too that such a change need not take away all jobs or even a majority of them to have drastic consequences for society. After all, during the depression, job losses peaked at just 25%. Back in the early 2000s, nobody was writing about this at all. The consensus was, and largely still is, that accelerating automation will mean more jobs. The theory is somebody needs to build and operate the next generation of machines. But I could see that eventually, in many if not most cases, machines would be able to build and operate themselves, eventually. Researchers from leading institutions, including Oxford, Brookings, Nomura, and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, all have stated that they think 40% or greater job displacement is possible soon in the United States and presumably other advanced economies. The effect is expected to be even greater in poorer countries. Though many new jobs will be created, they say, there can be no certainty that the new AIs of tomorrow won't be able to do them more cheaply and reliably than new people. The emergence of large language models and other generative AIs has reopened the discussion about the pathway from today's surprisingly robust AI tools to a possible future AI superintelligence. Many experts believe that what we have today is what's called narrow AI, which is entirely computational and task specific, even though it may seem broad because it can tackle so many different narrow areas more all the time. On the other hand, general AI, should it be achieved, will have full human level or even superhuman cognitive abilities. Now, it's still seriously debated whether and when general AI will be achieved, though our ACS AI expert advisors and many others as well expect it to happen by the early 2030s. I have to also say that since publication of this book, one of our AI expert allies has educated me that AI needs to be understood in a more nuanced way than I expressed in the book. I said to him, I don't understand why any human job doesn't just reduce eventually to some combination of repetitive tasks and decision-making processes, judgments based on experience and or rules known to that profession, in rare cases supplemented by trial and error to find something new that works. I said to him, all of these seem to me to be amenable largely or wholly to narrow AI and not just to general AI. He responded that AI research has historically misunderstood which human cognitive processes are hard to replicate and which are easy. Early AI researchers thought that logic was the hard thing and perception was the easy thing because logic requires thought and animals can't do it. While perception, on the other hand, is automatic and all the animals do it as well as we do, it turns out that it's actually the opposite. The things that seem easy to us are the most challenging to recreate artificially, precisely because we're unconscious about what much of what they entail. Consequently, in this expert's view, narrow AI will never be able to do certain things well enough to replace human experts. Some AI experts believe that narrow AI will never be able to perform high-level personal services such as medical care, legal advice, and financial planning because the trust and empathy required will not be easily provided by machines. Other industry observers already see these capabilities emerging in today's large language models like those from OpenAI. Other examples, including trades such as plumbing, electrical work, and carpentry, only seem easy because they include nuanced activities that are obvious to the expert practitioners, but not easy to codify into rules, and at least to date, not amenable to generative AIs running robots. But with all that said, 
My expert does expect that when general human-level AI emerges in the early 2030s, it will be able to replicate human expertise sooner or later in all areas. Our experts collectively regard general AI as being something new. It's not just an amalgamation of many narrow AIs, but rather, and also crucially, it has its own agency. So we can't just say it's a machine because we will not be able to turn it off, which frankly is a little bit spooky to some of us. While general AI, should it emerge, may be happy to help us in running our narrow AIs and our robots, we will need to respect it as a being in its own right. And indeed, AI researchers expect these general AIs to actually have innate curiosity and a desire to learn, explore, and play. Kind of sounds a little bit human, doesn't it? And by the way, there's a blog at the ACS website about this entitled, Do AIs Need to Have Fun? That describes an article by a mathematical researcher into AI, and he argues, yes, they do, and he thinks he can prove it. Kind of amazing. Now, I don't cover most of these arguments in the book, and, and they're rapidly changing. The book is not intended to provide answers to all of our questions, and certainly not the depth that will eventually be required. Instead, it's intended to show the importance of considering these questions deeply and intentionally, hopefully many of us doing so together, and then to shape our future with purpose instead of accidentally fumbling and stumbling into it. The book has hundreds of mainstream references, and it can be legitimately criticized that the scope is broad because it touches on many subjects, but the subjects could all be explored far more deeply. And indeed, there are counter-arguments that I perhaps have not given full consideration of. I understand this. It was not written as the last word on celebration societies, and certainly not on societal transformation in general. Rather, I'd say it's closer to the first word. It is, as stated on our website, intended to stimulate discussion and debate, leading us to a grand experiment in creating a model society. The idea is that it will be structured as an ever-evolving system of systems, which can then be transplanted elsewhere to start additional societies via a pay-it-forward approach. Really encourage you to watch the movie by the same name. It's a wonderful movie. Broadly speaking, we propose a giant judo flip on automation. Instead of jobs being the basis for incomes and for human dignity, use the automation to provide for everyone's basic needs and design a different kind of society in which people's worth is not equated to their net worth. Now, to be fair, I don't have a clue how to retrofit this to any existing society, which is part of the reason I took the approach of a tabula rasa, or first principles creation on uninhabited land. But I do trust that greater minds than my own will step forward in the future and figure out how to do this once we've proven the viability of this approach somewhere on Earth, some small society. You were also an early advocate for societal action in warning about the problem of accelerated automation and proposing a structural societal solution to this problem. Could you perhaps elaborate a bit on both the problem and the solution that you propose? Most of us are still in denial about how big a problem accelerating automation poses. Lower and mid-level jobs are now under threat, including customer support, copywriters, and voice actors, to name just a few. While junior software developers are nervous about their jobs, something they never expected as early as 2023. This is all happening because a single person trained in how to use this new class of AIs can do work that used to require a small team of other people. Further, and often missed, is the fact that AI need not replace jobs wholesale to endanger them. It need only replace functions within a profession. 
Alexi is an example of a company using conversational AI to automate the function of legal research at law firms. That represents 20% of lawyers' billable hours, so fewer lawyers and paralegals will be needed for research, meaning fewer jobs overall in the industry. Already, many blue-chip law firms are featured on the Alexi website as customers, and this is just the beginning. When AI carves holes into a profession, one after another, like Swiss cheese, it reduces both current jobs and future job opportunities. Carve enough holes, and the profession, any profession, will become unrecognizable. Unlike previous waves of automation, this one includes both robots that have human-like senses, even beyond, in some cases, and AIs that can learn and adapt like people do. I believe that no type of work is ultimately safe from automation decades from now. Further, accelerating automation is now an exponential phenomenon. It's not linear, which is how we humans tend to think, and we tend to believe the world works. While we may only lose millions of jobs in the 2020s, by the 2040s, I expect a minority of humans to be working, maybe a small minority. We shall see. More ominous, we can already see the impact this is starting to have in societies across the globe, in the rise of scapegoating, support of fascism, whatever it may masquerade as, and other desperate attempts to be the person who still has a chair when the music stops in the job market. It started with outsourcing to other countries, and yet an important Ball University study found that I think it was 89% of the job losses in the United States since the turn of the century were not due to outsourcing of jobs to other countries, they were due to automation. I imagine that study will extrapolate to other places. Fascist solutions have clearly been shown not to work based on historical evidence, but they offer a kind of siren song. They're very appealing when they're put simply and persuasively. We embraced first principles thinking to address the underlying accelerating automation problem taking inspiration from successes in science and historical societies, regardless of political or social associations. Our solution, in essence, is to build one model society based on systems of sustainable technological abundance, effectively unlimited raw materials, energy, and organizing intelligence, basically software, will soon enable effectively unlimited production of goods and services of all kinds upon demand. Further, advanced true recycling systems and closed-loop manufacturing, which is already starting, will assure that objects which are no longer needed get reused completely without lasting waste. Each celebration society will establish a set of consensual principles known as its charter. All law, regulation, and culture will flow from that charter. Among these principles, at least if I have anything to say about it, will be a commitment to the scientific method and best available evidence in formulating both law and policy. Like everything else about a celebration society, even the charter will evolve, but I intend that it be very hard to change, requiring a supermajority vote of citizens. Now let's consider continuous process improvement. This idea, which is almost at the level of gospel in Japan, enabled Japan to rise in half a century from an exporter of balsa wood trinkets to the world's leading consumer electronics maker at the turn of the century. Continuous process improvement must be raised from an industrial level to a societal level, and then our model society will, over time, 
come to lead the world in quality of life. Once that one model society exists, operating as a system of systems, we will freely offer its knowledge open source to the world and also offer to pay it forward, helping other societies to form. Indeed, I want each such society to make a charter level commitment to foster at least two other celebration societies. That's our pay it forward principle. Done well and assuming the demand is there, this will lead us from one model city state in the early 2040s to over 2000 such city states by the late 2070s. Such is the power of exponential progress if it's sustained. Considering our history of technological development and how this has been related to increases rather than decreases in exploitation of the environment, I'm wondering how we can ensure that we will be able to protect our planet with science and technology in the future. Do you have some thoughts about this that you could share? Deforestation has largely been due to cattle raising and timber extraction and more recently fires due to climate change. The raising of cattle for food will largely end by the mid-2030s. Wood as a fuel will soon be passe, except occasionally for aesthetics, and wood used for paper can be replaced with hemp at four times the proven production per acre. Wood used for construction, on the other hand, can generally be replaced by processed guadua bamboo, which is also significantly more resistant to high winds. CO2, carbon dioxide buildup in air and oceans, has arisen from burning fossil fuels, which we will soon instead use for plastics feedstock or just leave in the ground. This largely has to do with what economists call externalities, the costs that exist in manufacturing or consumption but are shoved off into the commons and ignored as if they didn't matter. The advent of closed-loop manufacturing, which, as I said, is now starting to happen, and of what I call true recycling, instead of the largely cosmetic version we currently have, will help enormously. True recycling can happen with two related systems. The first is use of regenerative agriculture, including mycological systems and permaculture, to capture useful organic refuse for reuse back into the system as fertilizer. The second is that for other materials accepting radioactive waste, tomorrow's advanced plasma converters are expected to be able to turn all of the input waste stream into a combination of synthetic gas, reusable elements, and a good building material called slag. The synthetic gas can then be burned, or even better, used as a feedstock to make useful chemicals of all kinds. Also, it's important to keep in mind that a plasma converter is ideal for processing all non-radioactive chemical and biological forms of waste. They're completely neutralized in the process. Now, let's talk a bit about the solution you're proposing. What is the essence of the Celebration Society idea? For all of history, humans have generally lived in conditions of prevailing scarcity, most noticeably the poor, but even the wealthy are surprisingly affected by it. Just stop and consider for a moment how every major decision the wealthy take in their lives must consider the context of scarcity within which they live a privileged existence. This includes choices of advisors, friendships, security measures, and even romance and marriage. They indeed enjoy some abundance, but they need many moats to protect their abundance, both physical and virtual. 
While there has been significant progress, especially in recent decades, in eliminating poverty, the advent of accelerating automation risks reversing these gains. We can create societies in which conditions of physical abundance prevail permanently. Societies in which specific shared human values govern behavior and expectation. Almost all of human progress has been due to science, the scientific method, and technologies that have resulted from experiments. Now we propose to elevate the scientific method to its last frontier, the design of society itself. The book proposes three pillars that this model society builds on. Abundant clean energy, abundant matter, and organizing intelligence. Could we go through each of these? We are on the verge of being able to end material scarcity. This astounding fact is based on the observation that all material wealth without exception is some combination of three factors, raw materials, energy, and organizing intelligence, which these days is usually, and soon almost always, software. There is today, I should mention, a popular idea that in order to avoid catastrophic environmental damage, the wealthier nations must hunker down and do with less. Aside from this being antithetical to almost everything about human progress and repugnant to most who would actually need to participate, it's simply wrong in every respect except one. And that exception is notable both in its significance and in how little attention it has received from what some of us call the limits to growth crowd. As older persons like myself will recall, the limits to growth was a landmark study published in the last century. It did an exhaustive analysis of physical systems on Earth, concluding that we cannot sustain unrestricted growth forever. While brilliant as far as it went, it had a crucial design flaw. It defined us as a planetary species, now and forever, not considering how outer space development could end shortages of raw materials and energy while orbital space colonies could end shortages of habitable lands. Jeff Bezos wasn't blowing smoke when he talked about a possible solar system-wide human population in the trillions in centuries to come. We need to redefine ourselves as a solar system-faring species. While reusable rockets and asteroid mining will help very much, I believe the game-changing technology will be something known as the space elevator. It's planned to come into operation in the late 2030s. Long the stuff of science fiction, recent developments in the extrusion of very long sheets of graphene have finally made this possible in principle. I was honored to be invited to serve as the contest chair for the International Space Elevator Consortium's 2022-3 academic challenge to identify world-changing use cases for the space elevator. Now it's a matter of further research, development, and of course, scaling. With a group of these space elevators in operation, expected by the 2040s, many millions and eventually billions of people will be able to travel off-world safely, slowly, and in a completely green manner. Almost all of the energy used to lift people and cargo into space will be recaptured through regenerative braking. That's why it's called the green road to space. And it won't pollute the atmosphere like rockets do. Once processed material mined from asteroids in the moon has been used to build O'Neill-style rotating space worlds with Earth-like gravity, huge numbers of people will begin to not only be able to vacation in space, but even live there permanently. By the 2030s, we will also have a fully immersive virtual reality with negligible latency, meaning that it'll be as fast as real. I assert that in the vast majority of cases, we 
humans do not actually want physical possessions. Rather, we want the experiences those possessions enable. In the movie The Matrix, for example, the steak which the villain ate was just as satisfying as if it had been physically real. In VR, everyone will be able to enjoy luxury villas and sublime vacation spots, as well as one's choice of vintage automobiles, among other things. Such objects will appear and then disappear on demand, and they won't require any maintenance or insurance. Importantly, they'll require almost no matter and almost no energy to render and deliver. Are there any new developments that you have seen after you wrote this book that you would like to add? Small modular nuclear reactors, which are ultra safe, relatively inexpensive and quick to install, are now starting to be manufactured in quantity by companies including Rolls-Royce and startups, notably including Last Energy and a company called Ultra Safe Energy. It's a good name if you ask me. Westinghouse is even getting into the act with their amazing eVinci system. There's a two-minute video about it. I highly recommend people to look up eVinci. Also, on another front, Caltech recently ran a successful experiment on a solar power transmission from space to Earth. Following that experiment, governments, including China, the U.S., Britain, Japan, and likely many others, are making plans for their own solar power satellites. These satellites will provide effectively unlimited, safe, power 24-7, forever, or until we have something even better, such as Fuji. China has stated plans to build a 2 gigawatt solar power satellite by 2050. That's an important number because that's the size of a typical full-scale fossil fuel power plant these days. On the other hand, I have to share some sobering news as well. A recently published paper in Nature, which is starting to get some buzz, concluded after a very careful analysis that the AMOC, or I forget the exact meaning, but the Atlantic Ocean Circulating Current will probably collapse within the next 60 years with a most probable date of 2057. Now, to sum up, while there are multiple companies moving aggressively to give us scalable sources of clean power, I do worry that this will be used to replace fossil fuels, which is fine as far as it goes and important, but crucially not to power atmospheric and oceanic removal of CO2 and then it's sequestration. We need both. As we are finding ourselves in the middle of this AI era, do you have any additional thoughts about human capabilities that are not replaceable? Only that I'm told that the analysis in my book has proved prescient. In particular, human creativity is in many ways now seen to be replaceable by AIs. And most of us aren't particularly creative anyway. I'm a lot less creative than I used to think I was. We will soon need to stop thinking of a person's worth as being equivalent to their net worth or professional skill set, and instead create a context of sustainable abundance in which people can thrive without work. As has been demonstrated in multiple contexts, recognition can substitute for money when people's material needs have been met. Let's recognize great achievements and contributions to society though through regular and lavish celebrations. Our goal for later in this century is to free up everybody to go on permanent vacation, enjoying the lives of wealthy aristocrats with no need for human servants. We're about to form a nonprofit to further these ideas. Now, that's not to say that everybody will stop working soon or even in this century. Many people like to work, and I've come to appreciate that some forms of work will be hard to replace with robots and the AIs that control them 
for many decades to come, or perhaps even ever. But that still leaves huge numbers of us at risk for becoming permanently unemployed and unemployable. So I looked into the idea of a universal basic income, or UBI. The results of my investigation, published as the article Guaranteed Mirage Income, found that all the then-known proposals were either not viable or not sustainable. Non-viable means that they depend on assumptions which are not realistic. Now, non-sustainable means that they depend on something external for the funding, which cannot be counted on to continue. The so-called Alaska Permanent Income Fund, for example, is based on oil revenue. After writing my article about the guaranteed mirage income, I became aware of Michael Haynes' MUBI approach, M-O-U-B-I, which has since been adopted by Basic Income Australia, and perhaps that entire country in the next year or two. Any country that issues its own currency could try this out as an experiment. It's designed to evolve and adapt. It's not a binary on-off like other UBI approaches. And by the way, this ability to evolve, adapt, and even shut off if need be, is a crucial design feature of future geoengineering climate solutions as well. Michael proposes to start MUBI at, say, $10 a week, and increase it by just $10 a week until it reaches a target level such as $500 a week in perhaps as little as a year. Now, if inflation rears up during that time, freeze the level until that's under control and resume increases later. He also proposes a tiny tax, far less than 1%, which would be used only for the purpose of reducing the money supply in the event that that's necessary to reduce the inflation. So, Mubi, you could say, has its own braking system built in. Regardless of how a universal basic income is achieved, when people are freed up from working, some will, of course, argue that the sedentary passengers in Wally will become the norm. But most of us, we celebrations would argue, will relish the chance to play and create games, do artistic and crafts projects, learn, voluntarily take care of each other, explore, and celebrate. Many of those with useful skills will continue using those skills for profit or to serve. We're not opposed to capitalism. We expect capitalism to continue for as long as people want to play capitalist games. There is no class warfare in any way part of our proposal. We envision capitalism eventually fading away and leaving just the smile, and that happening only when all the people playing are in agreement that it no longer serves their interests. By the way, I have evidence in the form of quotes for the idea that people will continue using their skills for recognition. The most startling finding when writing my book was that superstars in all fields, whether business, sports, science, invention, arts, or even I later learned engineering, do not actually work. They play very hard at games of their design or choosing. It just looks like work to those of us who couldn't imagine playing that hard. Now, you could say that's fine for superstars, but what about the rest of us? I have several responses. First, in a post-scarcity society, there will be abundant room for and encouragement of excelling in all fields of endeavor. A lot of people whose genius isn't yet recognized will have it recognized then. A little-known fact, Stanford ran an open course in artificial intelligence, open to the world. They had a huge number of people enrolled. The top students who beat out all of the Stanford students were completely unknown people from podunk places and unknown villages in other countries. There's genius all over the world that hasn't been recognized yet. 
Second, even if one can't do something extraordinary like that, we will also celebrate and thereby recognize so-called ordinary contributions done beautifully over time, like the gardener who keeps a public park welcoming and soothing for years. Also to those who say the robots will do all such jobs, I say, why so? If I grow vegetables because I must eat, that's a very different context than growing them as a hobby. I submit that we will have the robots and AIs do those things which people don't want to do or can't do. People can still do the parts we relish doing. But how will we solve the issue of resources and raw materials needed for the production that will support abundances for all? You mentioned asteroid mining. What would that look like? And how can we ensure that we don't disrupt nature and our planetary system like we have done with Earth? Large asteroids can be considered as free-moving or sometimes orbiting mountains in space. There are countless smaller ones, too, between Mars and Jupiter. Asteroid mining will likely involve nuclear-powered robotic systems that attach to the asteroids and then drill out or cut out sections for further processing into elements. We need to draw a sharp distinction between asteroids, which are inhospitable to life, and on the other hand, worlds, such as Europa, which may have planetary oceans that may indeed harbor life. Speaking personally, I would favor a treaty that governs the exploration of ocean-bearing moons and planetoids, requiring that all exploration of them be done with clean room-level sterilized equipment. But, and this is important, there will soon be absolutely no need to mine anything but asteroids. It was calculated as far back as the 70s that we would have to strip mine the surface of the Earth to a depth of half a mile to match the then-known asteroid resources, and the catalog has since grown larger. One thing that struck me when reading the book was the elaborate ideas about how to structure economical, legislative, and educational aspect of a celebrationist society. I consider education to be fundamental to all societies. It, at the same time, it has always had a deeper purpose and, and following the industrial revolution, it has been a gateway to positions and skill sets that our societies have needed. One thing that I would like to ask you with this new context in mind is, uh, if work as we know it will not be a major part of our lives, what should our educational systems look like? Or should there be a system at all? As each celebration society will have its own charter and guiding principles, I would favor universal education that teaches children to understand, through discussion and debate, the charter principles. We favor teaching children how to think, not what to think. And by how, I don't mean any sort of indoctrination process, other than understanding logic, evidence-based reasoning and its limits, the scientific method more broadly, and, importantly, the uses and abuses of propaganda and emotional manipulation. If somebody wants to call that indoctrination, okay, I'll wear that proudly. I would also favor the teaching of skills for managing one's emotions, processing upsets, effective interpersonal and other forms of communications, money management for so long as we have money, and offering the opportunity to observe and explore various professions. I would also favor exposing children to the various religions and spiritual practices that are extant in their society. Why not? We explore different foods from different cultures. Why not other things as well? Speaking of cultures and their beliefs, 
as I've come to understand it, in ancient India, apparently the caste system was not intended as a way to put one type of person above another. Instead, it was a way to recognize fields of useful knowledge and expertise, much of which could be learned through observation of adults by children. Thus, there was the concept of a family dharma. Dharma is the work one was born to do in this view of things. For example, a person born into a family of Bach musicians would be given every opportunity to cultivate practice and further his or her musical knowledge and competence. But on those occasions when children demonstrated more passion for a different line of work, after their explorations, they would be adopted into families aligned with their interests, with no shame or opprobrium to anyone. In fact, it would be a celebration. As today's work is ever more completely replaced by tomorrow's machines, especially when artificial general intelligence is developed, people will still demonstrate early passions for one sort of activity or another. Tomorrow's educational system will recognize and support the cultivation of those passions. It, it's interesting to me that to fully master any type of activity likely requires the development of many tangential skills. For example, even a PhD in literature today requires some computer competency. Personal note, when I was learning about dinosaurs at age six, I quickly was forced to move into books written for older kids and then adults. I was always reading two books, the dinosaur text of the day and my best friend, the dictionary. Before I was seven, I had a high school reading level and it was effortless to get there because I wanted to learn. I needed those words as tools to understand the advanced books about dinosaurs that I was eager to absorb. And I submit that many, many children have this kind of passion that just hasn't been tapped. In the future, certainly in celebration societies, exploration will become a powerful force in our lives for personal satisfaction and growth. On a pragmatic level, Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator, the world's most successful startup incubator program by far, has written a series of essays on the problems with today's educational system and what is needed to foster young people capable of founding and co-founding successful companies. That's where the rubber meets the road, folks. While to my knowledge he hasn't used the term unschooling, he clearly favors that kind of approach, which is now in over 60 countries. Unschooling, by the way, was started by an American educator named John Hunt back in the 70s, and it basically takes the stance that kids are naturally curious and playful, and that this should be worked with, not against. Yeah. Why fight the river? Why not redirect it? So teachers are replaced by what I like to call learning assistants, who provide guidance and expert knowledge, largely in response to a child's own expressed interests. If somebody told me, you have to learn all these vocabulary words, I would have said, boring, but when I was shown through my own explorations, those vocabulary words were powerful and useful tools. I soaked them up like a sponge. Some will say, well, then such kids will simply sit around playing games on their phones, learning nothing and accomplishing nothing. That's a reasonable concern, but this is actually at odds with best evidence in several ways. First, institutions such as the U.S. military and a number of major corporations are now increasingly using what they call serious games to develop knowledge and skills in people. They're finding that games are a better way to learn than traditional methods in many cases. Kids can also be guided to play such games and they'll think they're only having fun. Even learning math can be gamified, and it has been. Second, the actual results from years of unschooling, generally speaking, the results are comparable 
to conventional schools with one notable difference. The difference is unschooled kids demonstrate more creativity, often choosing to delay or even skip college in order to start businesses. There have been some various examples, like the boy who saw no reason to learn to read. So he didn't. But once he became a teen, he had an epiphany. And because he was motivated, caught up with his peers in a matter of months, he went on to become a lawyer. I think the best evidence comes from the Finnish public school system. They have no private schools in Finland. So the public results are the Finnish results. Their schools include important elements of unschooling with lots of self-directed time encouraged. I would recommend people read the World Economic Forum's article entitled 10 Reasons Why Finland's Education System is the Best in the World. They also encourage in the children a common set of societal values, which we deem as critical to having a society rather than adversarial groups who happen to share geography. In the future, I envision every adult having an iButler expressed through one's smartphone and household robots. What will become the iButler may start out its relationship with the person while a young child as an iTutor, supplementing human education with an infinitely patient and flexible support system. This will in turn support Insights, one of our major future projects for which we welcome AI-related experts' support and involvement, and also potentially donors and investors. Does this mean that you don't envision a mandatory school system at all? I don't envision much mandatory anything in a celebration society. Yes, there will be rules, laws, and of course the charter, which will guide everything. But a key principle is that competent adults should have agency over their own bodies and their own activities, except when such pose a threat to others. Those who lack sound judgment, whether children or those who are incapacitated, of course need to be protected to the extent the society deems wise. But I would see this as rare and protected. I also find the ideas about healthcare from a celebration society rather revolutionary. But before we go into the changes you propose, could you share some thoughts about the systems we have today and how and why these illness profit models are not working optimally? Sure. The idea of possible immortality has all kinds of implications. And healthcare primarily achieved through prevention rather than through cure is, like other societal ills, at once revolutionary and obvious. Another idea is that competent adults should have full agency over their own health care in consultation with their medical professional. Yes, the society will favor evidence-based approaches, but not a heavy-handed banning or mandating of certain practices. For example, there is now solid evidence that PTSD and other traumas can be cured rather quickly in many cases through a combination of guided talk therapy and psychedelic substances administered therapeutically. Yet many years after this was first published in peer-reviewed journals by Dutch psychiatrists, it still remains illegal in most of the world. Millions of people suffer, their lives ruined needlessly when they could be given a cure. It was actually startling to read about the business you opened in Thailand, where you offered a rapid self-test for HIV and how it took 14 years before the FDA finally approved such a test in the US. I guess this is only one example where the system we have is not working fast enough. When a reputable company such as Abbott Labs has a test strip for something as life-threatening as HIV, 
that's easily self-administered, and the FDA takes over a decade to approve its use, something is wrong. In your book, you are suggesting a completely different approach, prioritizing preventive and curative motives underlying it. What will the healthcare system in a celebration society look like and be based on? Again, I must say we will have a heavy emphasis on prevention and early detection using the best of Western medicine, supplemented by all complementary and alternative medicine that is low risk, low cost, and shows solid empirical benefit. I foresee the widespread proliferation of miniaturized cheap sensors for all sorts of health data, worn by people 24-7, or at least tested frequently as personal choice. It's almost an axiom amongst medical professionals that prevention and early detection are far cheaper and safer than cures for advanced diseases. AIs will become our diagnostic partners, personally and for our doctors and other healthcare practitioners. I also see the antiquated distinction of dentists from other types of healthcare professionals as fading away, and PA being recognized as every bit as competent as MDs and DOs. I expect more and more of healthcare to be taken care of by nurses and a culture of prevention to take hold in celebration societies. It is quite extraordinary, this increasing focus on medical advancement in research and tech aimed at elongating life and advancing human health, such as gene editing tools, personalized medicine, stem cell therapies, nanotechnology, digital health and anti-aging therapies, just to mention a few. But in the world as we know it now, I can think of many ethical, social and economic considerations. And perhaps the most crucial one is the potential challenge of ethical development and implementation, as well as equal distribution and access to these advancements. How do you see this play out in a celebration society that is based on abundance and open access? Well, until we have planetary universal abundance... I expect the wealthy to receive the benefits of advancing technology years faster than the rest of us. However, it seems to be a law of consumer technology that it comes out expensive, rare, and rickety, then evolves to be cheap, ubiquitous, and safe. There are indeed many ethical issues, and I believe those should be properly decided at the societal level. My personal views will be among many others. Your book is also outlining how the structure of a celebration society could look like. And there are systemic structures with leadership, government, and legislation branches as well. Could you explain this a bit more, Jonathan? We originally envisioned there being four branches of government, those being a unicameral parliament, judiciary, administration, and something called royalty, for want of a better word which is closer to the vision of Lafayette, Queen Elizabeth II, and of Thailand's King Rama IX, the last king, than to some others. Major changes to the government or to the charter would be possible either through consensus of all the branches of government or through supermajority citizen initiative. Supermajority citizen initiative would be the ultimate check and balance on all other powers, probably requiring a three-quarter vote for approval. It's important to understand that we propose to abolish birthright citizenship. Residency will not be the same as citizenship. Oftentimes today, citizenship is taken for granted, and citizens often know little of their own government or their society's rules and government operation. By way of example, about half of U.S. citizens declined to vote in 2016 in what was perhaps the most consequential election of their lifetimes. 
Instead, we propose that citizens should be made into an office available to all residents of a given society. However, it will be an office not easily won. It will require successful passage through a formal rite of passage, which may over time evolve, but with no grandfathering. This right will test the physical, mental, moral, and social aspects of each applicant, including character. Candidates will be expected to support each other without coddling. For example, I expect to be in my 80s when I do this rite of passage, and I trust that some of the younger people will help me with those physical tasks, which I may not be able to perform. In turn, perhaps I would be able to offer them some wisdom. The citizens will be the government. There will be no elections. There's no need for elections, as I would like to explain. Instead, as in the Venetian Republic, which led the world in maritime and architectural pursuits for centuries, and from which we have borrowed other important ideas, legislators will be chosen by lottery for single staggered terms of service, varying in length from three months to three years. This simple fact should eliminate the political parties or factions so despised by some of the U.S. founders. It will also greatly reduce moneyed influence on politics as well as gridlock. Those are three of the four great weaknesses of democracies known since the time of the ancient Greeks and well known by the American founders. The fourth great weakness is demagogues, or as some call it, man on a horseback. This is especially timely given how fascism, in all of its names and forms, is once again the ascendant ideology on the planet. Fascism always arises with a strong man. It's never, to my knowledge, been a woman. We propose to eliminate demagogues by once again taking a page from the Venetians. Their leader was the Doge, an elderly man greatly esteemed. It was a lifetime appointment. He had much influence, but almost no power. Administration was by the Council of Ten Ministers. Each ministry had its domain. The council gathered together to discuss interdomain issues and decide such. Ministers were appointed by the Parliament. The Doge had exactly one power, to break tie votes. That's it. He also nominally served as head of state, but all decisions needed to be ratified. Now, since we'll be a society that emphasizes service, voluntarily given as the highest social good, that will be woven into our structure. Instead of a doge, we will have a sarve, a Sanskrit word meaning for all. This person will be the lead royal appointed by the royals according to their internal protocols. There will be two other levels of royalty as I envision it. The first level of initiation will be the sevaka, or servant. From amongst servants, a small group of mahana sevaka, or great servants honored for their depth of commitment, will be selected by the royals. Royalty will ordinarily be a lifetime position. Crucially, it will confer no special benefits. None. Royals will be inducted by invitation from amongst citizens for their demonstrated long commitment to public service. And Induction will be voluntary. There will be no problem declining to accept. This kind of royalty, I must emphasize, will be almost an inversion from some traditional royalty. No public obeisance from others. No special powers over others. No land rights or tithes. Just an opportunity to be of real, deep, and continuing service. Again, the life of Lafayette and his model noblesse oblige serves as an example. By the way, I thought about this, and if America had had its own royalty, Ben Franklin would have been another fine member. He retired young and devoted himself to public service, young being in his 40s. On his tombstone, he wanted it said that he served well. Why will we create the royals? Because we observe that in the absence of such a class, people choose their own public figures to elevate, to celebrate, for better or worse. Sometimes these people 
are those who exemplify morality and service like actor and philanthropist Paul Newman, who formed a company to make foods and gave 100% of the profits to charity. He was what his fellow Jews would call a mensch. Other times, they are people with serious flaws. The idea is to offer to people, especially children, public role models whom they can emulate. Royals will preside at celebrations. They will give uplifting speeches and talks. They may have interests in specific research areas. Some may be like Neil deGrasse Tyson, evangelizing the wonders of science. Some may make themselves available as trusted counselors. Celebrations, as I see it, will be frequent, lavish, and central activity of the society. Celebrations will recognize great achievements, such as scientific discoveries that change the world, as well as smaller acts of service done faithfully and well over many years. They, too, will create virtuous role models, inspiring others into their own contributions, generating a never-ending upward spiral of achievements, celebrations, and even more achievements into the untold misty years of the future. This begins, I think, to address the question of what will people do with themselves in a post-scarcity society. Apart from the initial four branches of government, I foresee eventually adding a fifth, the Council of Immortals. This would be the ultimate level of service, a cadre of beings who've devoted themselves to always being available for wise guidance of the society down through the centuries and even eons. While this would be only one of the five branches, I can't imagine the others overriding it. Perhaps they will just break ties. I would imagine royals and possibly other citizens receiving invitations when they make clear through word and deeds their commitment to service and to immortality. Of course, once that technology or suite of technologies has been well established. And we're on the threshold of that right now. By the way, as Aubrey de Grey once put it, all that's necessary to achieve immortality is to extend one's healthy lifespan one day for each day lived. So what is the process of admission to the society as a resident or citizen? We are now starting to grow a cadre of people who wish to be celebrationists. Soon we'll develop a code of ethics by which we will be bound and to which we will hold each other accountable. I expect this code to evolve into the charter over time. Each person has specific skills and passions which they bring to the game. We are inviting people to offer us their help. We need it in many areas. And yes, we do view this as a great game. In the same spirit that superstars play games, we invite people to play this game that way. There will be a significant educational process to prepare people for such a different kind of life. My wife has taken this on as her main area of service. She writes a blog on Medium. We're currently contemplating creation of a celebration ecotech village a kind of Silicon Valley experience with a more balanced lifestyle in which the society begins to form and our ideas are tested before going to the level of a full city-state. We may also create a kind of an MORPG in which people can virtually experience living in a celebration society, seeing if it's for them, and then helping to design and refine it. Everyone will start out a resident. They may be virtual residents in an MMORPG or physical residents. Some will stay that way for life, and that's fine. There's no obligation to take on any higher role or responsibilities. Others will want to become citizens and take the rite of passage, which I tentatively envision being offered twice a year at first. And then if they pass, they'll enter a new kind of life, 
having spent months in the trenches, as it were, preparing for the right, and then possibly 10 days in the thick of it with every kind of personal challenge, I expect that at the end of the right, all of the, the candidates who are in that particular cohort will gather together in a circle and quietly ask themselves one question while looking at every other candidate. Would I trust this person with my life? A certain number of black balls, and that'll be determined through discussion and debate, would be enough to say to the person, sorry, you were anonymously blackballed. You have to go through the cycle again. One final point about the right. I want those of us who go through it to, at one point, experience the hardships of our forebears, foraging for food, even going hungry and being thirsty, having to build shelter, and having to rely upon each other for survival. I want candidates to also have an immersive experience, just for one session, maybe even just a few hours, of the horrors we humans have visited upon one another and upon animals. I want candidates to experience the Inquisition, the Jewish Holocaust, other genocidal campaigns, slavery, and so forth. If done via immersive VR, this can be at once more brief and more harrowing than if delivered otherwise. Tears will be shed. In the countless centuries of abundance to come, I want this rite of passage to serve as a touchstone so those of us who lead the society never forget the backbreaking hardships and suffering of those who came before us upon which we have been blessed to build and serve this exalted world. So it requires some financial means to be a part of the initial settlements. Do you see any problems with regards to inequality and inclusion? I guess some might say that people who need such a society the most, who are first considered unemployable, might not be able to join. So will it be a diverse society? Money is required to create all megaprojects in the present day world. We accept this reality. However, we also recognize that the residents and citizens of a society will require numerous personal services until all such services are automated, which may be decades away or never. This creates a need for skilled professional service providers with great attitudes who are willing to serve in this way. We will definitely have a high minimum wage, health care, a limited work week, excellent other benefits, and perhaps even a union for these workers. Further, crucially, they will vest their own land rights in future celebration societies, well, one such society per person, over a period of perhaps five to ten years. Thus, they will never be seen as second class, but instead as fellow celebrationists who are earning their residency in a different way. I actually expect a human waiter or masseuse to be an esteemed professional service later in this century, with their services primarily offered for special occasions. I have proposed that, subject to firm limits on population size in each society to assure its quality of life, residency should be open to anyone who is willing to uphold that city's charter. Through residence, citizenship, and royalty, we will encode in the very DNA of the cities that the best people are those who serve each other, as opposed to those who are served. At first, many will want to live in such a society, but just won't be able to do so. That's an unfortunate reality. However, as more and more of these societies are formed, I trust on an exponential growth curve, there will be greater and greater opportunities to both buy in and to vest in through personal service. Over time, more and more people should qualify for residency in the newly formed societies. Once we have at least three of these flourishing and giving new meaning to the phrase first world living, I fully expect that greater minds than mine will take up the historic challenge 
of retrofitting those existing societies that are willing to this model. So there will have to be a thorough evaluation process before people are allowed in initially. Indeed. Living in the society will be a precious gift, not one that can be purchased with money alone. We expect a deep and intensive orientation process to be formed and always used. It may be delivered virtually and eventually through immersive VR once that becomes available. Though qualification for residency will be far less demanding than for citizenship, we will still require the applicant to understand and commit to support the evolving charter of that society and its wide implications for life in the society. Living in such a society will not simply be a matter of buying some land and building a home. The Charter will have certain requirements of all residents. If you fail to uphold those requirements, you will be asked to leave. I expect that it will require each resident to commit to a certain minimum threshold of time, money, or some combination of the two in paying it forward, by which I mean helping to found two other qualified celebration societies within five years. And then each of those will in turn take on that sacred obligation and so on. Thus, in this way, one becomes three, which then becomes seven, and on and on, wherever on earth and eventually in space, people want this lifestyle. Do you have any plans for a simulation project to see how a celebration society can look like and develop over time? I mean, before implementing it? Plans? No. <laughs> Keen interest? Definitely. I think that a well-funded project executed on a VR world-building engine could be quite timely. We are open to discussions with people who have relevant expertise and with potential large funders. To me, it sounds like a very peaceful, kind and positive environment with a lot of room for personal choice, purpose and happiness. However, towards the end of the book, when we hear the fictional speech by the mistress of ceremonies, it gave me some associations to science fiction stories I've read before with charismatic leaders and worshipping citizens. And I guess it also made me think that critics might compare it to a very kind, but nevertheless a cult-like environment. One major difference is, of course, that this is a society that is driven by transparency, openness, scientific rigor, and foundational humane and sustainable principles. To me, EMAC. cults have three attributes. They specify a required set of beliefs, they discourage leaving the cult, and they restrict members' contact with their family and friends who are not members of the cult. There will be no limitation to contact or communication between society members and non-members. In fact, since people, and not just society members, will be celebrated for their contributions in all fields, I expect free and forthright communication to be encouraged. We intend to make all public celebrations available worldwide through immersive VR. Residents of specific societies or even neighborhoods within those city-states will choose additional rules, nudges, or beliefs they follow extending upon, yet always consistent with that society's charter. Far from forcing people to adhere to those rules and beliefs, residents who disagree with them will be encouraged to find other neighborhoods or even societies that better align with their personal values. Crucially, the society will be set up in such a way that people will be allowed to leave without being forced to abandon their goods and other property, though they cannot be absentee landlords and will need to sell their house or apartment when they depart. Now, speaking of charisma, that's a 
power, which like any other can be used for purposes ill or good. As my wife points out in a celebration society, leaders will be defined by the fact of having followers, not by any largesse or other benefits they can bestow upon people. In fact, in a context where everyone's basic needs are met, the lack of ability to bestow significant powers or largesse will greatly curtail the emergence and appeal of charismatic manipulators, though it may still happen for other reasons. In such cases, we can only hope at this point that the cultural commitment to reason, evidence, and certain interpersonal values will hold fast over silver tongues, further with multiple checks and balances, exceeding those of today's democracies by virtue of, among other things, the omnipotent citizen initiative, the citizens should be able to protect the system from siren song. I think I want to spend some time on the human psyche if you are open to it. Do you believe that all humans who have been accustomed to the scarcity game can find meaning in such a society? Or would it take several generations to get used to an abundance game? I guess what I'm asking is, do you believe people can be this good? And do you think the good in people will continue to prosper over time? History has shown that humans seem to have a need to explore and have this inner curiosity to create more opportunities and new inventions, as well as constant expansion and utilization of resources. So what if the human nature is not suited for a secure and steady life? Should this be controlled by governmental or societal restrictions? People who want to be good in our current society often struggle against systems that incentivize selfishness, taking advantage of others, and one's own success coming at someone else's cost. It's that old dog-eat-dog phrase again, even though Darwin didn't want that to be the future of humanity. Our proposition is that if you redefine the systems from the ground up and do not adopt legacy systems, unless and until you understand what behaviors they incentivize, you can create systems that reward cooperation over competition, selflessness over selfishness, or any other standard you may define societally as good. If it's easier to be good than to be bad, the vast majority of people will be good. The fact that it will only be ingrained habits and beliefs for the first generation or two only underscores the importance of those systems. People's first thoughts may be for scarcity game behaviors, but if those are consistently harder and more costly behaviors than abundance behaviors, then the abundance game behaviors will win out over time. It's only after people repeatedly see the benefit of abundance game behaviors over their old mindset that their habits and beliefs will change. Consider something as simple as hoarding. When COVID lockdowns were announced, how many people bought far more toilet paper than needed? simply because they were afraid of running out, despite signs asking people to buy no more than three packages. The systems incentivized and rewarded hoarding behavior. But stop for a minute. Consider, what if we'd had different systems in place? What if people paid an increasing surcharge on every package of toilet paper above three? And what if all the stores operated on the same database so you couldn't circumvent the system by shopping at multiple stores? Then, what if there were discounts given to people who only bought one, and next week the counters were reset so they could get the discount again? That would have incentivized people to space out their purchases, buying just what they needed this week and waiting for the next delivery from the distributors before buying more. Some people still would have hoarded, but far more would not have, we believe. And it was the widespread hoarding that triggered the fear of not having enough, and so it was a vicious cycle 
And this repeats from time to time and place to place. The assumption that people will not strive to explore or achieve excellence when their basic needs are met is fundamentally flawed. It will just be the mode of exploration that will change. If they don't wish to leave their society, they may become scientists exploring the quantum realm, or they may become psychologists exploring human or animal psyches. They may become astronomers exploring the depths of space, which only grow more glorious the better our tools become. Just look at the Webb telescope. They may explore virtual creations in a simulated world of which there is no limit to our creations, ever. They may even continue to explore the physical world, but use drones and automated vehicles to do so. And the historical constant of population expansion is very much predicated on poor social safety nets. The research on this is clear. If the only insurance you have for a comfortable old age is that your children will take care of you, you'll have lots of children to assure that at least some of them live to adulthood and you can enjoy that hard-won old age. But research clearly shows today that if people do not have to rely on their children for social security, families have far fewer children, and that such a shift in social norms can occur in as few as two generations. Many societies have recently, in fact, become net importers of citizens. There will have to be some structures put in place such that the size and environmental impact of a society can be managed, but it will probably not need to be at the level of restrictions. Simply adjusting incentives to match desired behaviors. For example, houses could have a wasted space fee if there are too many bedrooms that go unoccupied, or a crowd mitigation fee for squeezing too many people in a single room. You'd still be able to have as many children as you wanted, from none to fielding a family baseball team, but the incentives would steadily incentivize residents toward a sustainable population number. And the beauty of our ever-evolving approach to knowledge and systems is if a particular nudge doesn't work well enough, strengthen the nudge or look at a second nudge. This is the power of experimentation, and it hasn't even begun to be plumbed on the level of society. Similarly, the reason people tend to constantly use more resources is that it's cheaper than resource-efficient production and full recycling. Adjust the costs, adjust the incentives, and you adjust the behavior with no need for heavy-handed regulations or very little. Cass Sunstein has developed the idea of nudges. Nudges can be thought of as cultural norms or systemic societal design guidelines, which are a step below laws and regulations. They're gentle. They're not coercive. Yet they can be very persuasive. Consider tipping. No one has to tip, ever. Yet it's a common daily practice, millions of times, every day, even when the person tipping never expects to visit that establishment again. They're on a business trip. They still tip. It's so effective that millions of workers accept sub-minimum wage jobs as waitstaff, fully expecting to earn much more in tip. Now imagine a society in which a thousand nudges were engineered in, one at a time, to encourage behavior consistent with the charter. For example, suppose the society wishes to discourage the raising and killing of animals for food. We've conceived of a complementary currency called meat money. Each resident would receive a fixed weekly allowance of meat money. Meat that came from living animals would require one unit of meat money for each ounce of meat purchased. Those who wanted more than the allowance could buy it on the open electronic market for market price. In this way, those who cause the death of animals for food can do it without judgment or limitation, but the system rewards those who do not in a very tangible way. This is just one example of something a society might do if it valued protecting animals in this way. I read a LinkedIn post you shared about vegan diets and how plant-based meat and what meat can provide us with the nutrition we need without cruelty. 
This made me think about how animal welfare will be addressed in a celebration society and whether it will play a role in fighting species extinction, and if so, how. With the sole exception of banning the barbaric practices for raising and killing animals now practiced in so-called factory farms, I don't foresee any behaviors regarding the eating of meat as being coerced. That said, plant-based meat, and especially vat-based meat, are expected to fully emerge into widespread consumption in the early 2030s, as projected by solid evidence in Jim Mellon's excellent book, Moose Law. I highly recommend that book. It's eye-opening. Almost all of us eat meat for nutrition and for pleasure. We take no pleasure in the killing, and especially not in the torture of animals. Fortunately, by the mid-2030s, people will be able to enjoy almost any kind or cut of animal meat, and many not even imagined, without the pain or suffering of any sentient creature. And if some want to continue pasture-raising certain animals, and if the society can determine that those animals have a wonderful life, followed by a merciful quick death, that may be acceptable in some societies. That said, I would point out that when you can get a Kobe beef prime rib cut from a vat for the price of a McDonald's hamburger or blue crab Chinook King salmon and so forth, it seems likely to me that few will opt to grow animals for food. Another thing I find fascinating is the economic system you propose in the book. And I've also read another recent LinkedIn post you wrote about the future of currencies and the dollar. What will be the currency in the celebration societies? And what are some of the benefits you see with alternative arrangements in currencies and local currencies? We don't use the word alternative, but rather complementary. National fiat currency, which is what all national monies are, regardless of their superficial differences, does certain things very well. Other types of money can and have in the past been designed to complement fiat currency, creating what we finance people call a portfolio effect, in which the strengths of one currency balance out the weaknesses of the other, resulting in more stable and faster growing economies. Complementary currencies can actually end boom-bust cycles, not just in celebration societies either. After helping edit the wonderful book, New Money for a New World, I wrote a paper on this subject entitled a theory for global economic stability. Little did I know that I was recreating the MIT master's thesis of Bernard Latier, the world's foremost expert on these currencies. I think he was a little nonplussed when he read it and told me that. <laughs> I sure was. I expect that any society could have its own fiat currency, any celebration society issued by its own central bank. But that said, it's possible, and I think likely, that all celebration societies may well share a single common fiat currency, as do, for example, the CARICOM member nations in the Caribbean. And that would seem sensible to me anyway, but it's not my decision. As to the complementary currencies, in addition to meat money, I would expect to see widely used the wonderful SABER. Maybe it's pronounced SABER, I'm not sure. But it's discussed in New Money for a New World in reference to my own book, A Celebration Society. That currency alone could enhance educational outcomes manyfold at essentially zero cost. Do you envision the entire planet becoming one big celebration society? I guess I'm asking, is this truly a, a global endeavor? We have specifically proposed this as one small model society to be built on basically uninhabited land. 
because changing the world or even any single existing nation means taking on many, many legacy systems. While we will keep those legacy systems we deem effective, useful, and capable of evolution, all of those are important. Many of them are none of these things and indeed have powerful vested interests protecting them. Just to give a few small examples, the width of train tracks in the U.S. were determined from previous modes of transportation and are now nearly impossible to change. This width long constrained the sizes of the aerospace components that could be transported that way. Now consider taxation. Taxation is necessary to fund consensually agreed government services. It's not theft, as libertarians would say, when it's established by consent of those who are taxed. But the question of how that taxation is performed is a vexing one. U.S. presidents from Jimmy Carter through, I don't know who, but many of them have promised to completely revamp the system, and none has done so. Taxation can be either challenging and costly to administer or simple and inexpensive. Either approach can raise the required revenues. Adam Smith, in his Wealth of Nations, declared four maxims of good taxation. In my rewritten words from my book, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, 21st Century Translation and Commentary, these maxims are, first, those taxed should financially support the state in proportion to their earnings under the protection of that state. Second, taxes should be certain and not arbitrary. Third, taxes should be levied in a time and manner most convenient for the taxpayer. Finally, taxes should be designed to minimize overhead costs and avoid discouraging productivity. I submit that few systems of taxation hew closely to these maxims. Currently in the U.S., conservatively, about 3 million people make their living directly or indirectly from the tax system. Replacing that system would upset a lot of vested interests. Further, it's largely now a tool of social engineering rather than just of fundraising, which is why it's only grown more complex. And many don't know this, but it started as a single-page form with a single page of instructions about a century ago. Now it's literally over a meter deep, and I'm told that no individual human being understands the whole thing. Here's an interesting idea. Scott Smith's proposal, which I think he wrote in a book called Kingdom Something, makes an evidence-based argument that a tiny universal transaction tax could substitute for all other taxes levied in America while offering much greater public benefits. I think it was like a quarter of a percent or even less. We will consider such a tax in its possible feasibility for ourselves. Currently, as I wrote in the book, I'm foreseeing a single flat tax of some sort, probably limited to a level like 15% replacing everything used elsewhere to raise money for all government activities. Crucially, having all money be electronic should greatly reduce tax evasion, helping to keep the tax rates low. Reading the book, it seems like it is ideal to build celebration societies on grounds that are unused. You mentioned Iceland, the deserts and construction of islands in the sea in your book. Could these societies also exist in space? Indeed so. <laughs> the vision of Dr. Gerard O'Neill, articulated in his masterpiece, The High Frontier, solved for me the basic problem of providing material abundance. I literally cried tears of joy when I finished the last page of that book. His vision includes what he called space colonies, basically large inside-out habitats, affording residents the comforts and amenities of a new Hawaii, a new Aspen, or any other terrestrial environment of choice, all with both Earth normal gravity, achieved through spin, 
and exciting new kinds of recreational activities made possible through controlled or even zero gravity. All of this is explored in our forthcoming hard science fiction television series, Shadow King, a marketing guru ally of ours who critiqued the plot for the pilot script and is a guy who pulls no punches, let me tell you, said that this has the potential to become a Star Trek or Star Wars for our generation. But unlike those franchises, everything in Shadow King will be scrupulously real, meaning that even when we depict fantastical technologies and environments, and we will in virtual reality with delight, all of those will be plausible according to today's leading scientists in their respective fields. In this way, we expect Shadow King to do double duty. First, as great entertainment. If it's not that, it's nothing. But also, secondarily, it will support a visionary roadmap, much like Robert Heinlein's future history timeline. This will forecast the most plausible journey from the 2020s to the envisioned world. We already have an actual rocket scientist advising us on propulsion technologies and speeds, as well as a Caltech PhD and a retired Stanford professor, along with our other experts in AI and so forth. I should mention in passing that Shadow King relies on one extremely improbable plot device, a solar system-wide cataclysm for storytelling purposes. Finding a plausible mechanism for this cataclysm was actually the hardest part of developing the story. <laughs> Once humanity has built many O'Neill-style space worlds, it will be very hard to kill. We expect Shadow King to go into production in 2025. Thanks to some monies we expect in the next few years, my wife and I plan to put a million dollars toward the startup production costs, which are expected to total eight million. Some allies have expressed interest in matching us, and others are certainly welcome. I feel so lucky to have gotten the opportunity to read a pilot for Shadow King. I have to say I'm looking forward to the continuation. Do you have any thoughts about potential opposition from today's governments and leadership and how to address this? Some questions that come to mind were whether there will be lobbying, and if so, what is the strategy there? But also whether you think people in power from policy, academia, and business will give up that power. How can the transitions be planned for different power structures? And uh, how will the old leadership adjust to this? If the world outside is still competitive and scarcity-driven, Perhaps the outside world would treat the celebration societies as competition too. How do you see this whole scenario unfold and what does it take to make the transition smooth? Will the societies be member of international collaborations and organizations like the UN, NATO, World Economic Forum? I guess a lot of questions are coming up just about how the transitions will come about. We insist that each celebration society must be legally sovereign in order to control its ability to provide for such things as public works and benefits, taxation, immigration, and crucially, the unique system of governance, starting with four branches and possibly adding a fifth later. Each such society will be formed under international law by meeting either or both of the recognized requirements. First, formal recognition by two existing nation states, or second, meeting the standard tests of statehood, including recognized boundaries and established system of government, institutions, and so forth. We intend that each society will pass both tests. Now, of course, some will oppose this. Others will accept it or even embrace it. 
when we envisioned coastal Iceland as a possible location for the first society, part of the reason was that we could see it enabling the healing of the rupture between the governments of Iceland and Britain, which happened during the banking crisis a few years back. Given that tourism is the sixth largest industry in the world, we expect tourism to provide most of the revenues required to sustain these societies. In addition to becoming perhaps a Disneyland for adults, we expect each society to offer six star dining experiences featuring fruits and vegetables which are not available elsewhere because of their special growing, transportation, and storage requirements. Did you know that of the about 2,000 species of fruits and vegetables that agronomy specialists have determined we humans could eat, only about 200 are presently widely cultivated. We will cultivate more of those exotic ones, with Michelin star chefs delighting in new creations. I envision that each society will have its own high-rise, robot-tended, automated farms, supplemented by family plots, hobby plots, and some open-air plots also. But in those robotic farms, we can grow all kinds of things in controlled conditions. It's worth mentioning at this point that within each society, a number of private plots will be created and sold for residential and business purposes. Also, certain areas will be designated public, both for ample nature preserves and for public institutions. We expect the architectural designs, which will vary from society to society and even within the society, to interweave nature and wild animals, both into the surroundings and through the city itself in a manner carefully designed to be beautiful and crucially to segregate people and pets from the wild animals for the protection of all concerned. I, I might mention in passing that one of our endorsements comes from the last living disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright, and he literally lifted a page out of my book and popped into a recent book of his. He didn't even ask for permission, not that he would have needed to. I was incredibly honored. On a more somber note, we expect continuing opposition from the same people who oppose democracy, fascists and authoritarians of all stripes, as well as radical fundamentalists. By the way, when I use the term radical fundamentalists, I'm referring to how the beliefs are held rather than which beliefs are held. For example, ISIS is clearly an example of a radical fundamentalist religion. But there is another branch of Islam that shares almost all of ISIS's beliefs. The difference is that they interpret certain crucial Quranic passages as referring to inner work rather than outer work and they have zero interest in attacking or transforming others. Again, how, not what. We are carefully calibrating everything we do to minimize being threatening. While some will undoubtedly see us as a threat, we do not envision celebration societies having their own militaries. Only robust public safety and security services, probably modeled in large part on the highly successful Israeli model. Instead, we foresee these societies becoming major economic contributors to their neighboring states, which legally sponsor them into existence, whose militaries will protect their success as part of the deal. And to anticipate another question, we do not foresee them being invaded under any circumstances we can imagine because such invasion would destroy their economic and cultural advantages. As a pragmatic matter, we will found the first celebration societies in geographic areas that are peaceful and expected to remain so. Can we discuss some counterfactual and different possible scenarios? Have you thought about any unintended but possibly unwanted developments to be aware of when it comes to the celebration societies? How can one avoid that the enclaves are starting to compete, for instance? 
Many others have made proposals for new kinds of societies. Many of those are utopian in that a fixed vision comes down from the founder and later when disagreements arise, there is no clear means to resolve them. As one of our allies, the AI expert Dave Jilk, is fond of saying, he expects every utopia to eventually have a population of one. We call our proposal an evolutionary anti-utopia. We recognize that mistakes have been and will continue to be made. Indeed, some of my own have already been discovered, and I'm eager for others to find the rest of them so that we can evolve and fix them and do better. We never expect to achieve perfection, which is a hallmark of utopias. Instead, we will ever more closely approximate perfection in those areas we measure, monitor, and experiment with. Eventually, yes, some systems will be perfected enough that they will thereafter change very little, and rarely. But even then, like theories in science, they will always remain subject to better evidence. Could you know that there are serious scientists today who have alternative arguments for experiments to test whether the Big Bang is true? That's the nature of science. Science evolves. I foresee no problems of societies competing with each other when each will likely quickly establish and maintain its own unique culture and entertainments, which will probably generate visitor lists years long all going well. Remember, the number of visitors will be carefully calibrated, as will the number of permanent residents, in order to assure a certain quality of life, because if we don't have that quality of life, we lose the whole point. We lose almost all value, so we will do what it takes. Now, all that said, I do foresee a few wicked problems and would not be surprised if I've missed a few. For example, refugees. On the one hand, simple human decency mandates caring for refugees on a temporary basis. On the other hand, our strict limits on population and our requirement that all who reside here, even temporarily, must be bound to uphold the charter mean that we can't take in the vast majority of those who will want to come, whatever their reasons. I expect the refugee question may be resolved by providing food and temporary shelter to bona fide refugees just outside the city walls. But again, I expect that greater minds than mine will tackle this problem when and as it arises. Yes, I do expect these societies to be surrounded by beautiful walls, but nothing like what was pursued on the U.S. border. Those walls will be further surrounded by a large forested area, or in some places a jungle, as I envision it though this will not be my decision to make. Combining such a well-defined and protected border with a system of gentle public surveillance will mean that everyone, even vulnerable children and the elderly, can travel wherever they please in a given society in complete safety, 24-7, alone. We will also, importantly, have designated private areas in which surveillance is permitted only with advanced consent of all adults present or a particular court-ordered warrant. Public areas will be subject to recording, though with the footage always available to all citizens for review at any time. This differs entirely from the same mechanism when used by police states. Do you see any reasonable concerns about the feasibility of turning this idea into reality? It's safe to assume that there will indeed be adjustment issues. But I'll point out that by starting with one small model society, we will have ample opportunity to evolve and adjust our systems and systems of systems. The most thoughtful critique of a celebration society to date, I would say, was by the futurist Sammy McKaylin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This gentleman pointed out that a celebration society will never happen in the proposed timeline. I think he was referring to the 2025 target date I suggested in the story of Dogun within the book. Obviously, he's correct about that. <laughs> 
I said 2025 fourth is a date barely possible if everything fell in place immediately from the publication date in late 2015. I should have made that clear, my bad. Our actual expectation for the first celebration society is circa 2045. I do credit his breadth versus depth criticism as valid. I can only plead that there was just so much I could cover in about 300 pages. Within his critique, I would say that the most serious concern raised is that much of my proposal relies for its planned abundance on technologies which are still in R&D, and that those technologies may never be ready for widespread reliable use and deployment, at least not in a fully automated way. Someone responded in their own comment at the Amazon website that for effectively unlimited raw materials and effectively unlimited energy, we only need one such technology for each that's completely reliable and massively scalable. And yes, I mentioned a number of candidates for each of those in the book, but I think that point stands. One could suffice for each. But I would further respond that when I wrote the book, so-called new clear energy was indeed aspirational. But there are now multiple companies, including Rolls-Royce, rolling out safe small nuclear reactors soon in abundance. And when I wrote it, we were back in the era when artificial intelligence largely meant machines performing repetitive tasks and beating people at games like chess. The advent of chat GPT has put that to bed and AI is still just getting started. And my gosh, we even have Westinghouse announcing a small modular reactor that they plan to mass produce. I encourage everybody to find and watch their two-minute online video about their eVinci, no, a Da Vinci, but with an E. Also, the world already has some automated high-tech factories, and they're operating with just a handful of people. So we know that's possible. The question is, can all necessary production be evolved in this direction? And I think the answer clearly is yes. Remember, for the essential thesis of the book to hold true, we just need one of each. McKaylin also states that we tend to overestimate the effect of new technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. I think that's called Amara's Law. He and I may differ as to what's short run and what's long run. Yet I would argue that in this era of ever faster exponential change, the next several decades will give to humanity in all likelihood all the powers necessary to build celebration societies and to solve our other major challenges as well. Seemingly impossible problems are falling to today's accelerating science and engineering. For example, Thomas Zerbukin was NASA's head of the James Webb Space Telescope project. On the documentary Unknown, a cosmic time machine, he described the Webb telescope as a super hard thing that was almost impossible. He said it's like the Apollo program of space science. Ten miracles needed to happen. Entirely new technologies that nobody had ever done. That's pretty much verbatim. And yet, now, Webb is here. It's serving us. And it's breathtaking, isn't it? Until recently, practical electric cars were considered an impossibility. Likewise, superconductors greening the deserts, which, by the way, China has already done with the Han homeland, to give one case study. Robotic surgery, like the Da Vinci robot and many more accomplishments that we have today. I'll put my faith in the brilliant scientists and engineers who will arise to tackle the challenges of a celebration society once we can hire them. Time will tell. I could be wrong. I have been before. I simply maintain that this is a grand experiment well worth pursuing. It is interesting that a foundational principle seems to be the reliance on solutions that are evidence-based and experimental. I really enjoy that. This will be an evolutionary society. 
We presume that we have made and will make many mistakes. Therefore, a key principle is to design all systems and systems of systems such that when mistakes are uncovered or improvements discovered, they can be addressed quickly with minimal expense and upheaval. Like Singapore, we will scour the earth for best available evidence and best practices that we can borrow and implement. And when we don't know, just like successful Silicon Valley startups, we'll conduct A-B scientific tests. The scientific method is based on hypothesis, which means a falsifiable statement, followed by careful trial and error, also known as experimentation. Eventually, the hypothesis is either disproven or supported by repeated scientific experimental results. After very many confirming experiments, a hypothesis may rise to become a theory. The word theory in science means something much more strict and serious than is commonly used in normal human conversations. And the intentional conflation of the two is, I think, intentional disinformation by some. Eventually, when there are multiple celebration societies, I expect them to collaborate on scientific experiments and to learn from each other's mistakes, making their progress together even faster. As soon as our basic needs are taken care of, we humans seem to spend a lot of efforts and time in seeking to fulfill these hard-to-define individual goals such as purpose and happiness. How would you define happiness, Jonathan? I think that Arthur Brooks, writing frequently in The Atlantic, does a far better job of this than I could hope to do. Ultimately, I think it's an individual thing. But that said, when our basic needs are met, if we still have some challenges in life, that keeps life interesting. Those challenges need not be physical. They could be. But many of us derive happiness from a hobby, be it a game, or a challenging craft activity such as cooking delight for meals or friends, puzzling or quilting. Some of us love seeing how well we can play tennis and bettering our game, or rock climbing, or any number of things, all of which can be supported in a celebration society, either in physical structures or in fully immersive virtual reality. Some of us enjoy imagining and designing new societies or engaging in political discussions or debates. The range of human creativity is magnificent. I expect that in the future, once we have an operating celebration society, millions of people will regularly play games and run experiments in an MMORPG of that society, where many improvements can be modeled before being tested experimentally in the real society. There seems to be no limit to the kinds of innovative and challenging activities we humans can invent. And when super intelligent AIs exist, I believe they'll be able to do the same thing in fields like literature, mathematics, art. If someone living in the 18th century had been told that by the 21st century there would be over 70,000 different board games in existence, with thousands more of these invented annually, and groups meeting in every major city worldwide at least on a weekly basis just to play these, they would not have believed it. And that doesn't even consider the multitude of computer or, or the forthcoming immersive virtual reality role-playing games. Thousands and thousands more of these. Yet as a player of many board games, I can assure you that many of these board gaming people play with as much ardor, devotion, and focus as most people work. As I wrote in the book, if aliens were to first encounter humans by way of visiting a chess tournament, there is little doubt that they would marvel at this remarkably intense form of work people huddled in front of these little boards, moving their little pieces around. This work, which can cause participants to grimace, sweat, and even to lose weight. As I recall in the Karpov-Kasparov World Championship, one of them lost, I think, eight pounds, maybe it was six, but a lot of weight during the course of the match. And the match was eventually called on health grounds. Kind of incredible to contemplate. 
Do you think a celebration society will get us closer to achieve purpose and happiness? By providing for everyone's basic needs while leaving ample and indeed maximum personal liberty to allocate one's own time, I do. And if it doesn't, I don't see how any other system could do better. Unless, of course, you consider a brave new world type of society dosing everybody continuously with a happiness drug to be better. I always try to imagine how people I meet or interact with were as a kid and the experiences that shaped them into becoming the person sitting in front of me today. When did this interest start? And what are some experiences that have been pivotal to your vision? Are there any memories you would like to share that might be significant to your dedication to create an alternative and sustainable society or world? Essentially, why do you dream about this? As a small child, I was plagued by asthma. I remember often coming home and throwing myself on the bed, afraid that I was suffocating. I think it almost killed me on several occasions. Let me tell you, there's no scarcity quite like the scarcity of air. So scarcity of the most visceral kind colored my childhood. Later in life, I also knew a scarcity of money. As I tried startup ventures and they all failed, often due to my own mismanagement, I found myself bankrupt once and nearly homeless on several occasions. I eventually realized that trying to start something for the purpose of making money didn't work for me. I needed a higher purpose to stay motivated through the thick and the thin. I also came to appreciate that effort alone was not enough to assure success. Those who believe in a Darwinian model of competition have ignored his second and lesser known book, The Descent of Man. In it, he argued for humanity becoming a cooperative species and transcending the dog-eat-dog -dog world of other animals. It was really heartwarming to see how you emphasize the meaning and benefits of collaboration in your book. And you mentioned important inputs and inspiration from your wife there as well. How important has she been to this project and are there other people involved that have been crucial to this idea? This project would not exist without my wife. When we married in 2009, we consecrated our marriage to the founding of a new kind of society, which would bring balance between cooperation and competition. It was an odd thing to do in a Catholic service. You weren't supposed to even do it. It wasn't supposed to be possible, but my wife has a gift of manifestation. She's a successful novelist, a trained logician, and a gifted amateur psychologist. Her ruthless edits of my 50-some drafts of the book forced me to excise everything that was not supported by mainstream empirical evidence, good reasoning, or that was off topic. She supported me also through the inevitable roller coaster ride, which this has been in the years before publication and since. She always has my back. I wanted her listed as co-author, but she was afraid that her reputation as a fantasy and science fiction novelist might color how people saw this. I could also name a few others who've been instrumental, but that would risk leaving others out. Suffice it to say, everyone who is helping us is doing so out of a profound sense of service, and I'm grateful to them all. At the website, you'll see many endorsements from people who are leaders in their fields. What you won't see are the others, such as the chair of a leading economics program, who have quietly lent their encouragement and support while staying in the background for now. The book might never have come out but for my wife's relentless support and one other thing. I developed a severe bladder infection in 2014. It almost killed me. In a moment of clarity during the painkillers they had me dosed on, I remember thinking, I could die at any time. 
If I die without finishing this book and I look back on this life, it'll be with unspeakable sadness. If I finish it and I'm widely called nuts, at least I'll have fulfilled my life's purpose. That gave me the courage to overcome my fear of being a laughingstock. Within a year of barely surviving that illness, and they had to get us approval of a special antibiotic from the CDC to save my life, the book was finally ready for publication. Today, I still say that it may be nuts, but now I rephrase it. <laughs> I say, if I'm in nuts, at least I'm in good company. I'm so glad you finished the book and grateful for people like you who have the courage to think beyond what exists today and who dare to not only dream about, but to pursue and develop elaborate ideas of how to structure sustainable and abundant societies in the future that builds on the best human qualities and knowledge and that will benefit all people in a truly democratic way. I'm also grateful for this opportunity to discuss your ideas and work. So thank you, Jonathan. It has been an honor. I'm likewise grateful to you, IMAC. People like you who are devoted to spreading awareness of ideas such as this are vital catalysts. Who knows the new allies who will step forward to help us, thanks to your service. Following the interview with Jonathan Colbert, I was left with so many thoughts about how much courage and unpretentiousness people like Jonathan must have to dare to create a vision for our future that captures every aspect of society, from individual happiness and purpose to the systemic groundworks and farsightedness. It has made me revisit science fiction literature with a different perspective. Imagining completely new future societies is not easy. But planning one in detail based on a reliance on hard science is an endeavor few of us will ever complete. I strongly recommend reading his book, A Celebration Society. I'm attaching a link to his book and some other sources in the recommended reading list for the interested listener. I hope this conversation will inspire others to imagine what the future societies might look like and to think about what systems and cultures we want to be a part of. Like Jonathan, who envisions a new kind of society that balances cooperation and competition, where scientific engineering and a compassionate culture are at the root of everything from new inventions to business, art, sports, and leisure. Thank you for listening to The Chameleon's Podcast. This is your host, Imak Samrana.